Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. And uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Mike. It's just me today here in the booth talking to you for this introduction. Today, some crazy news. We landed a rover on Mars, the Perseverance, and landed with no problem at all. And uh, man, if you didn't get a chance to see that, I'm sure the video is on Twitter somewhere. Go check it out. It's really, really cool. And this is one of the most advanced rovers that we've ever put up there. And they're kind of looking for signs of life. I'm I was a biology major and I love space. So I kind of geeked out on the whole event, but uh, down here in Columbus, it's, it's cold. It's snowing. It's uh, just been a pain in the butt to get everywhere, but I uh, hope you're all staying warm, staying inside, you know, enjoying the winter weather we're having here as much as you can. With that being said, today on the show, we've got Dr. Greg Burlett joining us. He is a partner and co-founder of the Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center here in Westerville. And he's also a surgeon. He's an orthopedic surgeon and uh, really, really interesting guy. He's also happens to be one of our sponsors. The Burlett Family Foundation is a uh, is part of his family's foundation. And the interview goes really, really well. And I hope you guys learn a lot about just the medical industry in general, because Craig has a lot of a lot of great insights into how medicine works. He's also from Canada. So he talks about the differences between their system and our system, as well as what he finds important, which is really the patient experience. And, you know, his insights on where the market's heading and how he's been able to build up his business at Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center were really, really uh, insightful, for lack of a better word. And uh, I think you'll all enjoy this episode. So appreciate y'all tuning in. We'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that. Live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24 Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike, and we've got both, man, I can't speak already. This is going to be an interesting episode. I got Josh and Tim here with me today. Guys, how you doing? Good, dude. How are you? Good, good. It's been a crazy week. I feel like I am juggling a million different plates at once, but you know, that's, that's the good thing. So Today on the show, guys, we've got a, a special guest joining us, and it is, his name is Dr. Greg Burlett. And uh, Greg is the managing partner of the Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center, a practice devoted to multidisciplinary foot and ankle care in Westerville, Ohio. And he is a past chairman of the Education Committee for the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, as well as a past board member of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons Council on Education. Uh, he's a consulting physician for the Columbus Blue Jackets National Hockey League franchise, as well as the former chief of the Division of Foot and Ankle Surgery at The Ohio State University College of Medicine and Public Health. Uh, he's also a driving force behind the Burlett Family Foundation, which is an organization that not only sponsors our show, but also supports several local nonprofits and community organizations. So really excited to have Greg on today to talk about his experiences as a surgeon, a business owner, and everything else he has going on. 
Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Greg. Thanks, guys. Thrilled to be here with you. I feel like it's been a long time coming. I feel like we should have had you on a little earlier, but it's uh, glad we're finally getting to it. So, you know, one of the first questions we like to ask is just get a little bit of background on yourself. And we've got kind of the inside scoop here. So you're not originally from the United States, correct? Correct. So um, I'm Canadian. I'm actually dual now, Canadian and American, uh, born in Canada uh, around Toronto. And that's where uh, I grew up. I did some of my original school there, moved around, did some training here in the U.S., and then ended up settling here in the U.S. So talk a little bit about your schooling in Canada. What, what all did you do there? And then when did you make the jump into the States? Uh, so in Canada, medical school is a bit of a different game than it is here. Uh, in a single-payer healthcare system, they define the number of doctors that they need for the population. So the university doesn't have a business plan and say, we're going to graduate 200 doctors. Uh, the government says, look, here's what we need. And so they'll do it. So I, I kind of ran into that. The year that I was applying to medical school, there was a um, commission uh, put together by the federal government to study healthcare costs in Canada. And they concluded that healthcare costs were directly related to how many doctors. So if you grad per doctor you graduate, your healthcare costs will be X. So the year I applied, they cut medical school enrollment by 25%, which was taking a fairly daunting task as it was and made it that much uh, more difficult. But somehow they let me through. So I studied undergraduate at Western University in London, Ontario. I did a master's at University of Toronto. I did my medical school in Calgary, Alberta. And then I came back to London for my orthopedics uh, training. So that's my surgical training. And then a couple fellowships after. And if you're keeping track, that's about 15 years of training after you leave high school, which I've always told my kids that anytime they complained that the ripe old age of grade six, that they didn't like school. I said, hey, hang on. It's a long ride. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a ton of schooling. And it seems like maybe a little more than, I mean, same time frame for medical school in Canada as it is in the States, or is it, you know, different time frames? Pretty much the same. Okay. So uh, undergrad uh, degree, and then four to five years of medical school, uh, depending on the internship part of it. Mine was a little different that at the time you graduated medical school and you were certified as a uh, primary care physician. So, okay. and then once you had that done, then you could decide if you wanted to be a primary care physician or if you wanted to go do specialty training, which mm -hmm. I chose to do. Right. So who, who was your team growing up, growing up in Canada? That's a, you, you crossed a lot of provinces there. Yeah, indeed. So uh, I have a, I had a primary team and then of course, whatever local market I was in, I quickly adopted. So uh, we grew up Leaf fans. So we, uh, Leaf tickets are this coveted thing uh, in Toronto and my father's company had awesome seats in Maple Leaf Gardens. So we set a, a few rows back behind the bench uh, in Toronto. And so we were at the Leafs as much as we could get there. Yeah, the, uh, the so the NHL did a restructure this year for like COVID. It's a shorter season, mm -hmm. but they have four divisions. And Toronto is, or not Toronto, sorry, Canada as a whole is all playing each other. So they don't actually play any U.S. teams. Wow. Which I don't in, think I like that. In Alberta, which, which actually, it, cre it creates some crazy scenarios. They, they haven't won the cup in 28 years. So this ensures that a Canadian team will be at least in the, in the final four. Ah. So it gives Canada statistically its best chance yep. of winning a cup in three decades. But there's this massive, in, in Alberta where he was from, there's Edmonton and, and Calgary and there. It's called the, the Battle of Alberta. It's mm -hmm. like the Michigan, Ohio State. And I was fortunate to go last season before, you know, they took fans away. And it, it's literally, it's like a, it's the, ri nutty. the rivalry. Yeah. I could, I could relate with the Ohio State, Michigan. So uh, did you, did you get involved in that when you were there or? Yeah. So I've still not been a fan of a team that wins the Stanley Cup. So I was born in 64, uh, Leafs won in 66. Uh, I was too young to be a fan. Mm -hmm. We moved to Calgary the year after they won the Stanley Cup. 
And then uh, we moved here to Columbus and uh, love the jackets and support them, but we haven't had our sniff at it yet. So mm-hmm. I'm still hoping that I get one one of these days. Let's hope it's in Columbus. I'm yeah, all for no, it. I, I am all about it. <laughs> so so why orthopedic surgery? What made you want to go into you know that particular line of work? I think you guys will probably relate to this, is that orthopedics is for those who wish they could play pro sport, but they just don't quite have it. No, I'm not uh, going to admit to that. <laughs> I chose, he chose, the, yeah, he chose, I chose the, different the, routes. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, orthopedics is, uh, it's a physical discipline. It is very concrete, meaning you, you do a task, you can see it, you can measure it, and you go home feeling like you accomplished uh, something. Uh, and it's generally a pretty good group to hang out with. Uh, most people that are in orthopedics like uh, motion medicine. They like uh, sports. And so, you know, like attract like. And orthopedics is year on year one of the hardest disciplines to get in, mostly because of that. Uh, most people who do orthopedics really like their job. So was the path to medicine, you talked about growing up, your dad owning or being a part of the business. Mm-hmm. Was there a push towards medicine? Was there a push more towards business and you took your own route? Yeah. So, um, so my plan, so my father had a modestly large uh, manufacturing company that was multinational. And so when I grew up, I saw business, business, business. Uh, and he involved me in it a lot. Uh, by, in high school, my, my weekend job was really to look at production numbers coming out of some of his plants to summarize it and then give him what was going on in the plant. So I grew up always thinking I was going to be an engineer. I'd do an MBA and then I'd go into the business. And really, it wasn't until later in high school that I, I kind of rethought that plan. And it was because I had this fateful conversation with my father. And I told him what my plan is. And uh, he said, all right, that's great. And I said, so, you know, that's, that's going to happen, right? I'm going to do this, do this, and then I'm going to join the company and, make, and I'm going to do what you do. And he goes, well, you know, if you're the best candidate in the world, then I'm sure the board will consider you. And what it became fairly clear to me is that there was going to be no nepotism in this, in this company or in this family. And so that uh, was good for me because it let me kind of open my eyes and relook at it and say, hey, is this really what I want to do? Or was I doing this because it was kind of charted out for me? And once I did that and I looked around, I had other important mentors in my life, one of which is my father-in-law. Uh, and he's a doctor. And I looked at him and I said, hey, you know, he's got a pretty good quality of life. He really seems to like what he does. And he comes home every night, which was a big deal. My, my dad was away a lot because he was running these companies all over the world. And, and so I said, yeah, maybe I'm going to do that. Now, as we get into our conversation, you'll realize that that last part, I've completely messed up because I travel <laughs> as much or more than my father ever did. But so I didn't quite deliver on that piece. But on the on the career selection piece, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I've ever had any second guesses that I did what was right for me. So at what point then, you know, do you make your way to the States? What, what triggers that and, and, and why come to Columbus specifically? Yeah. So in medical school, I was voted uh, most likely to leave Canada. I'm not sure I'm super proud of that. But my point was, is that when I entered medical school, I was waiting for the Canadian system to implode. It's a good system, uh, very good doctors, very good healthcare. But there's a certain amount of frustration in working in it because you really don't control any levers, none of them at all. You just have to deal with the resources you're given and then do your best with it. And so, I mean, I'm a business guy. And so I pushed up against that on a fairly frequent basis. And when we would have discussions in medical school about how are we going to do this or that, my answer was, we're going to blow up the system. We're going to rebuild it. And how's, this is how it's going to work. And, you know, my professors would shake their head at me and go, no, you're not going to blow up the system. You're going 
just find a way to make more with less. I said, all right. So when I graduated medical school, I went back to London, which uh, was the top orthopedic program in the country and uh, worked really hard there for five years. And then fellowship is a additional training. So when you do fellowship is you're done, fully graduated orthopedic surgeon, you can go out and work uh, or you can take more training. Uh, so I did two extra years of training. I did one, years, one year uh, as in sports medicine in Toronto and then I did another year in uh, Charlotte. And Charlotte was the top foot and ankle fellowship really anywhere in the world at the time. Uh, and there was one spot and I, and I was fortunate enough to get it. So while I went to Charlotte is I thought really through a bunch of things. And I, I really thought about how to leave my opportunities open. So when you, when you travel across borders, if anybody thinks it's easy to immigrate to the United States, they haven't done it. Uh, and so the typical way to come across would be with a, uh, a visa class that allows you to study, but then you have to return to your country of origin for three years. No questions asked, no negotiation. Or there's other ways to do it. So I found one of those other ways, which allowed me to train, but it didn't have that endpoint. So by the end of that fellowship now, I finally said, okay, I think I've had enough training. Or maybe Diane told me I've had enough training. So it was time to do a job. And I had this great luxury and that I was coming out of really the best fellowship. Uh, the Canadian training is very well respected. And I, I got a chance to look around. And so I looked on both sides of the border, had opportunities to go back to my uh my institution that trained me, they wanted me to come back as a shoulder surgeon, actually. Uh, and then uh, this Columbus opportunity happened, and it's, it, it was one of those fate things that you look back at. And thankfully, I was smart enough to, to go with my gut on it uh, because there were a lot of things about it that maybe didn't make a lot of sense, starting with I'd never heard of Columbus, Ohio. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So with that opportunity in Columbus, was that at the university? Was that somewhere else? It was a dual opportunity. So... Uh, there's a uh, orthopedic surgeon in town who's, who's passed, and his name's Tom Mallory. Tom Mallory was a giant of orthopedics, uh, and his legacy project was to leave his private practice group and take on the chairman of orthopedics at Ohio State. And as he did that is he wanted to build out his uh, department. So I knew him through some other channels, uh, and he approached me, and he said, look, would you ever consider coming to Columbus? I can offer you a tenure track position at the university, which is really what I always thought I was going to do was be in uh, academia. And I said, all right. Uh, right around the same time, I met my future partner, Tom Lee, at a meeting in Chicago. And Tom was in a general group, but talking about this vision about foot and ankle that really matched up with uh, my vision. Uh, and, you know, where do you live? Columbus, Ohio. No kidding. So we've got two different things pointing towards Columbus, Ohio. And uh, we, we took a, a flyer on it. And so when we came here, Diane and I had said, hey, let's give it a year. If after a year you don't like it, we can go back because she really, really wanted to go back to Canada. Uh, and uh, if it works, we'll stay. So after about six months, we made our decision. We bought a home and we've never looked back. And it's been a wonderful experience for us. What was that vision that you talked about that you guys both aligned on? And how was it different than what was already being done? The vision was that... There is room for a subspecialty foot and ankle surgeon 
within orthopedics. So orthopedics is a broad specialty. When we train, we're trained to do everything. So when I graduate, I can do back and spine and hips and knees and everything. And as technology's evolved and as the amount of knowledge has just exploded, subspecialization has become a thing. So there's guys who just do joint replacements, guys who do this. Uh, foot and ankle was always the ugly stepchild. Uh, is It got done because you kind of had to. Nobody actually wanted to do it. Not a lot of people focused on it. But uh, both uh, Tom Lee and I uh, saw that there's a big demand for it that's not being met. And there were some demographics about Columbus particularly that fit very well. At the time, it was a city of about a million. There was one other orthopedic surgeon in town uh, doing that. Uh, so there's tremendous uh, opportunity. There were some podiatric surgeons in town doing it, but not really doing re- the advanced kind of work that we do at the time. And so the business argument made sense. Uh, the support from the university meant everything to me because I needed the university's support for my visa. And the universities was willing to do some income uh, support for me, uh, as was Tom Lee. Tom was really important in that and that he he was able to kind of give me the security to, to come in and uh, try and build this thing together. So what do the early days look like when you, you and Tom first get here and you're doing things for the university and then the business aspect of developing something around a medical uh, profession is always something that's a little bit mystical to me? Yeah. So you got to create an identity. So we set about creating uh, our identity, that is uh, foot and ankle, uh, so that people understood what we did. Uh, and we, we stumbled at times. Uh, I distinctly remember about six months into my practice, a well-known orthopedic surgeon in town called me up and he wasn't happy with me because one of the patients came to see me for their foot. I did their ACL. Fellowship trained sports guy. I've done a million ACLs. Yeah, I'll do your ACL. And, he, and his message to me was pretty clear. He said, hey, Greg, we're glad you're in town. Your reputation's building. You're doing a nice job and you're going to do really well as long as you don't do that. Hmm. Say, you know what, is stay in your space. Uh, build, build your reputation around foot and ankle uh, and don't, don't wander. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do great in the city because we need you. We, we want you. We don't want to do that work anyways. But, you know, that's how you're going to get along well. So, so that was a reminder to me that uh, I was here on this foot and ankle uh, mission. And that aligned well. We called the group Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Center. Both Tom and I were in the division of foot and ankle at Ohio State. So, so everything said, there, there's really no reason except for my pride that I was doing ACLs. Uh, Sounds so, very like mafia gang situation. Yeah. You know, like I got an ACL lying around. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, I, th- I, I thought you say you just surprised them and did their ACL and they came in for the foot yeah, and ankle. Yeah, like, well, they came in for a foot and ankle and I did the ACL because that looked more interesting I was today. like, the old, the old ACL switch up. That, that, would, that would get the attention of the lawyers, Josh. Right, I'm, yeah. I'm not- <laughs> is that a standard thing in, in medicine? Uh, now it is. So at the time is... It would at time it was really nothing for an orthopedic surgeon to do a shoulder followed by a knee followed maybe by a disc in the back followed by some foot stuff. That was what general orthopedic surgeons did. And at the time, the market was probably at least fifty and maybe seventy five percent general orthopedists. Uh, we were on that front edge of subspecialization. Okay. And and so when we came here, we were the first orthopedic practice in Ohio to do subspecialty foot and ankle. And so as we built this thing out our draw was and continues to be very large. So about 30% of my patients I see on a daily basis are over 200 miles away. It's a subspecialty tertiary referral practice. And we've expanded. So we, not everybody necessarily does what I do anymore. But that idea, it was very well received. And all contiguous states were like, hey, this is awesome. If I got something I I don't want to handle or can handle, it's not a big deal. We know where to send it. Have you had to make that mafia call to anybody else and let them know? 
Um, kind of teach teach the younger generation. Uh, so I I educate a lot of people. So I have my own fellows, and I've graduated now over fifty of those. And I have conversations with people about you know how to how to create continuity in your community, how to talk to and make sure that you know you're getting along with people. As a general rule, though, is our discipline is now modestly mature, and so there's very few foot guys who go out and do ACLs. Now, gotcha. most orthopedic surgeons will do call. It's kind of the bane of our existence. So call means that, you know, you work a regular day and then at night your phone rings and you go in and you put together broken people who, you know, crash their car and stuff like gotcha. that. So most people will still do a lot of that. So they're operating all over the body. It's just that they're kind of what we call elective, which is the reconstructive part. They just stay in their, in their space. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, so what's interesting about the hyper-specialization is like, now there's people who are known as like, okay, specifically, I think I was reading a Wall Street Journal article about a doctor in LA who does, like literally all he does is athlete's thumbs because he's so well-known. He's He's got that notoriety that all the, like Drew Brees, I think uh, LeBron James might've gone to him at some point. A couple others, like dude, they, he's just known for like this guy, if your thumbs, if your thumb is messed up, this is who you go to. But that hyper specialization is probably going to continue. But something that is really important for you is, is your patient experience, right? Mm. And that's not always been something that people focus on. No. So early on, we looked at that as well. So it's now accepted, but 20 years ago when we were building this thing is uh, people didn't think about what I'll call episode of care. So episode of care involves when you're very first, first touch in 2021, that's likely a Google search, but episodes care is from the very first touch to the very last goodbye. And that means how they first interact with your group online, how they interact with your phone desk, the physical experience while they're in there, anything that does it. So episodic care is something that we defined as being very important early on. And it's driven a lot of our business strategies. So I'll give you an example. So early on, we maintained a shoe list. And what that meant is there was about 10 stores on our list, and we would hand this list out to patients. We say, hey, you need a pair of shoes. These are trusted people. Well, if you're handing out a list, you better be a good list. And so Tom and I and and our spouses, we'd walk in the stores, and we'd kind of secret shop, and we'd adjust our list. Uh, And it worked all right for a while, but at some point, you mean you took some collateral damage. Somebody would come in upset with you for a product that was sold by a third party that's unrelated and and it just goes. And so as that started coming is we would look at that and we'd say, all right, the pair of shoes is part of the episode of care for a foot and ankle condition. And we need to make sure that they're not contaminating our patient experience by that thing. And so if you take that analogy, just about everything that involves the episode of care is we're going to want to either influence it or control it. So we have a retail store, pretty large retail store right within our main office where we sell shoes and things like that. Our margins aren't great, but you know what? That's not the point. The point is to control that episode of care so that they don't wander out. And in this point, you can we can reinforce it on a bunch of things. Say they need an MRI. And they go out somewhere, and MRIs can be modestly high-ticket items, and they don't get the respect, they don't get a good image, blah, blah, blah. I own it because I sent them there. And it's just another reason why if you really want to control and influence this experience for the patient, 
is you have to work really hard on not just being a good doctor. You got to be a good doctor, but you've got to really think about all the pieces of the puzzle and how they fit into it and make sure you have a strategy that that's a good experience for them, just like when they're in your office. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. Very blue ocean strategy mindset. I don't know if you guys ever heard talk mm-hmm. about theory, but they talk about reinventing the value chain and, and understanding your market and kind of reconstructing what your market actually is from the experience that what the client goes through. So not all doctors though choose to also manage the business they're in. So as you guys have continued to grow the practice and structure things, why have you chosen to continue to take on the responsibilities and have the focus that you do? Well, I like it. I guess that's the real answer. <laughs> and we take turns. So I'm managing partner and I've been doing that for quite a while. And I like it. I, I, I'm a number guy. So I'm kind of geeky that way. I, I like spreadsheets and I've got a dashboard that comes out to me every couple of weeks so I can take high level looks at what's going on on, on numbers and things like that. And I'm always very careful to define that separate from my doctor role. If I'm talking to somebody and we'll pick an example, we're looking at a product that we're going to put on a patient, a boot or something like that, is I'll clearly say, hey, I'm going to assume that all of these products are equal. So I'm not talking to you as a doctor, but as a business guy, I'm telling you that your ASP on this product is 30% too high and you're going to have to drop it. So you, you have to flip gears back and forth quite a bit, but... It's also one of our responsibilities. So our, our responsibility is excellent care, great experience, and I have to deliver that with value. And that last piece is going to be where the big changes occur over the next 10 to 20 years. And I think we're as well prepared as anybody to do that because we understand our cost structure. And I know very much what our cost of goods are, including my labor, to, in order to deliver this uh, product, which is medical care. It's just not usually framed that way. Right. So what are, I mean, you said that the value, the last piece of that is going to be the one that grows the most in the 10, 20 years. What are going to be the value adds that you see, you know, they're going to become more important from a medical care perspective, other than just, Hey, did you make my, my foot or my ankle better? Yeah. So I keep flipping, flopping back and forth between the canned experience in here, but I'll give you an example. So if you have a a knee injury, Mm -hmm. it's not life-threatening, but you really, you're not comfortable on it and you can't climb a ladder. So you're a maintenance guy and you can't really do your job. Here in the United States, may say you file a worker's comp claim, and we see you and we say, all right, we, we, you got an ankle problem. We know how to fix this thing for you. And the value part would be is uh, I can identify the problem. I can identify the cost to fix the problem, to diagnose it and fix it, and I'll project a return to work. And so you can wrap that up as an employer and say, all right, for this amount of money, they say they'll have my employee back in three or four months. That is what I want us to be able to do. And we can, but the market doesn't want it yet. They're not doing that. So what they'll do is that same patient will see a number of different providers in the community. One will get them back to work in four months. One will get them back in nine months. And another one will get them back in a year. And they're not valuing that time element. Mm -hmm. And then this is where the Canada piece comes in, is Canada delivers very good care. So if I drop you in a hospital up there with the same injury as here, you're going to get the same surgery with the same implants, with all of it. You And it'll look and feel the same when you're there. The piece up there that gets a little bit funny is uh, the wait list equation of it. And the wait list is not cooked into the cost of care anywhere. 
So if you're off four months waiting to be seen to get your ankle fixed, is they'll say, look, we delivered cost at 30% less than if you had your surgery in the United States. And then they'll talk about that, but they never actually talk about the four months that you weren't able to work. And so in our system here, I think it's a better system because the market can drive some of that wait list activity, whereas up in the Canada, there's no lever to control there. It's just limited. Right, right. So it's kind of like an indirect cost in that the, you know, if someone's out of work for four months, they obviously aren't contributing to the economy. We're not seeing that. And somebody's got to eat that cost at some point. At some point. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, and it can, you can cook that into some social supports and some other things that they will do. That's one of the reasons that I would argue that I'm here in, in the United States is that being able to have more influence as we go through that thing so that we can do it. And the value piece is, is that I really think that uh, we should be competing over quality of care, patient perception of care, and measured objective outcomes. And that's how we should do it. And if we really play that game to its point, is I think that you will create some differential pricing in the system, and you will really be able to influence consumer behavior. Because so far, is medical consumerism is somewhat inelastic. I mean, it's just, we're still somewhat in a, in a bit of an antiquated system in that somebody tells you to go see this doctor, you go to that doctor, he or she says, here's what you've got, here's what you need. And you're, the risk is, is a lot of patients are fairly passive in that uh, interaction mm -hmm. uh, where I'm arguing they shouldn't be. Yeah, how often do you go to a doctor and think that you actually are, are partaking in a shopping experience that you, and, and it almost, I mean, you described this the economics behind this to me like five times. And I still feel like I walk away every time and there's this black box to me in mm -hmm. med medical and healthcare of how the economics and the ecosystem works that I just, I walk away just thinking it's built archaically and it's still operating archaically and it's not really incentivizing for the right things. It doesn't feel like. Well, what's interesting is there's a, another article I read, I think also in the wall street journal potentially, but it was talking about how, medical insurance, right? Like when you look at insurance, right? Insurance is meant to prevent catastrophic issues, right? But when we look at medical insurance in the US, it funds the, you know, your you get your trip to the doctor, your weekly checkups, your, you know, those types of things. And then it like, then when the, the big items come up, well, you're on the hook for part of that because, you know, you got a copay and you got a, you know, percentage. Whereas the argument is that if insurance only paid for the larger items, but you didn't have to pay to go visit the doc, like it, you had to pay personally, that that would actually drive costs down because now we have true competition. Whereas if we're all just going to the doctor based on the cost of our insurance, then doctors have a, like the increased supply, it increases demand so the doctors can charge more. I'm probably messing this up a lot, but well, even transparency, you know what I'm saying? What, what, even we, transparency into the pricing. Yeah, yeah. We actually have very good examples of what you're saying and it's going to prove the opposite of your proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, so if you look at World Health Organization measures of health, mm -hmm. um, Canada destroys the U.S., beats them hands down on just about everything you measure. Yep. Infant mortality, mother mortality at birth, uh, longevity, all of it. It destroys it. And it's because healthcare is universally acceptable. It's not a sickness model. It's mm -hmm. a wellness model. And that's what a lot of people argue we need to go to here in the United States. But to go to a wellness model you have to remove the barriers to access because mm -hmm. wellness means that you're willing to access it and there's very little burden to access it. Right. So there's nothing simple about 
mm-hmm. how you do this. And the, the other part that the black box Josh talks about is it is a complicated conversation is, you know, there, there's a finite amount of time you can spend with the patient and you want them to have the knowledge they have. But admittedly, you've got to boil down a lot of experience and education to some sound bites so that they can get it and make decisions. What I completely don't accept, and we're doing way better, mm-hmm. way better. The old days was somebody walked in the room, said, here's what you got, here's what you need. They walked out the door, don't ask me questions. That is so completely unacceptable in 2021. Mm-hmm. And I tell patients to fire their doctors weekly. I said, so what did they say? They don't want to answer my questions. I said, good, fire them. Patients always look at me cross-eyed. They go, what'd you just say? I said, fire them. They're not participating as a physician. They're participating in a one-sided role and they, they've not engaged you. So there is room there, but there's a, the hyper consumer and they're tough. You know, I, I had somebody just last week say, say, can you teach me about surgery? I said, sure. And so I kind of gave them my soundbite story and they said, no, no, everything. I said, what do you mean? They said, start with the skin incision and I want you to walk me through this whole surgery, exactly what you're doing step by step. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not useful. You're not going to make, <laughs> you're not making a consumer decision because all of a sudden I just educated you how to be an orthopedic surgeon right. for your bunion. Uh, there is a middle ground there and mm-hmm. it can be a little challenging. I like how Greg hit me with the, you know, you're wrong, but he said it politely in like a very like, <laughs> no, you, it's going to prove the opposite of your proposition, but it's, <laughs> I appreciate you it's, informing. Honestly, I know nothing about insurance and the way it works. So it's, it's really interesting to hear it. See, I'm, I'm one of those people that would like to see that, that model adopted just because of those numbers that you're talking about. Obviously I understand, you know, there's less than about 10% of the total people in Canada is in the U S like he's from San Diego, California has more people in the state alone than the entire country of Canada. Do you think from, at least in your experience working in both, do you think it's something that we could even begin to implement here? Or is it just something we're going to talk about forever and I think we have to find middle ground. Uh, it, it's going to be challenging and, and there's going to be a, a, a significant uh, cost issue that's going to have to be addressed. But I think we have to find a middle ground uh, in that the current model doesn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. Uninsured people still get care. Uh, they just show up to the hospital uninsured. Yeah, uh, they have the medical ho- debt forever. Right? Yeah, and, or the, yeah, and the hospitals provide it because they're obligated to, but there's no, there's no money. So it's just that current system is not working. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't pretend that I think we should be all single payer either because uh, it might work for a little while, but it'll spiral uh, out of it. So I think uh, both of them should work to the middle. I think Canada has room for a private pay component. So those that want uh, preferred access and want something that's maybe more a luxury as opposed to a necessity, they currently do not have the uh, ability to Buy that. They have to leave the country to get that care. Oh, okay. I think that they should have that access. And likewise, I think on this side, I think we need to pick up the safety. Be like buying a this, nicer car as yeah, opposed to buying yeah. something that'll get you where you need to go. Yeah, I mean, in Canada, you can money buys everything yeah. uh, except healthcare. And it, Interesting. it just doesn't. Uh, well, it sort of does. You can fly to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but not in the country. But not in the country. And and on this side is I think we need to pick up our safety net mm-hmm. so that we give people a shot. Because a lot of healthcare is not necessarily uh, your fault. It, it's stuff that happens to you. And, and if you can lift them out of that and help them get on their way, then it, it's going to end up being a much better model than either denied care or care that saddles them with debt for the rest of their life. Yeah, that's the thing there. Um, so t- taking it from a perspective, I guess, who who would, um, 
who would oppose that the most? Or what would be something, say I'm a, I'm a regular citizen, not a doctor. What, who, what would be my opposition to, to that, to switching over to basically more of like Canada's model? If, is there one or what? what yeah, would no, be the main? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a funding and an infrastructure challenge. So in Canada, the hospitals are owned by the government. So there's, there's not a private hospital that owns all these things. In the U.S., we've got many hospitals that are all privately owned. So you've got the problem of, of real estate and how are you uh, going to pay to use that. And our capitalism is good. It drives some, some really good care and some really good efficiencies. So it would require just a massive overhaul. That's why I don't suggest that that's what our, our market needs. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, with a little bit broader funding, uh, that it could. The question's going to be is who gets the funding, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you look at any government program, and if you suggest here's a trillion dollars up for grabs, there's a lot of people who are going to suggest that that money yeah, should be there. Ninety percent of it will go to the military somehow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. like everything. So, so I I think it right now is aspirational, but I I don't think it's a bad one, and I think it just needs to be on our ongoing uh, evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more we understand about who provides care at what cost, at what quality, and our big data should drive a lot of that. United Healthcare, through their Optum uh, subsidiary, they are the biggest data analytics company uh, in the world right now. And that's what they're looking at. Would it be financially de detrimental for a massive company that's privatized healthcare to adopt that model? Do they end up losing money in the long run because they're no longer able to take on that debt. And even if they're getting pennies on the dollar, still getting it because they have to now fight for it. Or what, what would their opposition be? Would it be, uh, yeah. we already have it good. Why change it? Or what, what would no, it be? The I mean, big you, you've got a perfect example right now is, uh, three years ago with great fanfare is JP Morgan, uh, Amazon, uh, and Berkshire Hathaway, uh, formed a partnership, uh, to create a healthcare system for their employees. So they had 1.2 million employees and they'd said, uh, the current healthcare system as it exists doesn't work for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to use our leverage. And uh, they did really interesting things. They hired Gatawande, who's a brilliant guy, a surgeon out of uh, Boston, to be their CEO. And they, you know, money was no issue. They just threw it at it. And what they concluded three years later was that they all had different motivations for being in the project. Yeah. Uh, and they dissolved it. They gave up. And they, so they're back. And so that to me is disappointing because if anybody's going to have the horsepower uh, to, yeah. to run the AI algorithms to really analyze risk behavior and, and all mm -hmm. that, you would, it's got to be Amazon, right? But I think that's the thing that I've, I mean, in my very l minimal understanding and experience in the industry is just, there's too many people that if you come, if you come to me and I have a guaranteed income and you're like, Hey, but let's break up that guaranteed income to like help everyone else out. I think most people are going to be respond. Well, yeah, no, I would you prefer know? that we don't do that. Yeah. So I think I, I, I just, I mean, I'm, I hope that we see an improvement because it's not working. If you run that out though. Uh, so that the, the experiment uh, that they did was a little lopsided is I think that of those 1.2 million, 800 of them or something were Amazon employees. So Amazon has gone forward. They have, uh, they bought pill packs. So they've got their own internal pharmacy. They have uh, opened up a whole bunch of uh, clinics for their staff Interesting. Uh, with uh, online access to nursing and doctors, access all free, go in, get your care and come out. So they're building their own infrastructure of healthcare. Uh, I'm, I don't know if that just didn't work for the other partners yeah. in it. So they said, hey, go off and do your own thing. 
JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years, providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. So, Greg, what's on your mind for the future at OFAC? Like, are, you know, do you want to continue to expand the office and bring in more surgeons? Do you want to do, you know, where, where do you see things heading from here? So it's a, it's a balance. So we, we do a, a lot of things. We've been talking a lot about uh, the economics of, of care here. Uh, we do a lot of research. We are one of the biggest research units uh, in foot and ankle, uh, really, uh, in the United States or the world. So we have two full-time employees, and we publish a lot of papers, usually about 20 or more a year. Uh, that's important because it, uh, if you're publishing uh, and you're on the podium, it gives you voice. And if you have voice, then you can talk about disruptive things like we've been talking about here and say, hey, let's look at this differently. And our societies aren't super receptive to economic research, but they're getting there. And some of my partners are equally excited about that with me. And every year or two, we, we throw economic research at our colleagues and see what they think of that. Hmm. So I think that's important. I think that those that are following it are sharing it and, and we're influencing it uh, that way. We will continue to grow OFA. So we're a very unique company in that I call ourselves the United Nations of, of foot and ankle. So uh, I'm an MD orthopedic surgeon. We have uh, osteopathic DO orthopedic surgeons. We have DPM foot and ankle surgeons. And then we have office space. We have physical therapists. We have nurses. We've got PAs. We've got a big care team. And I think that that broad breadth of experience is very good uh, for uh, some of my colleagues uh, really don't see how you can mix what seems like two disparate cultures, uh, particularly uh, podiatric medicine and, and orthopedics. Uh, historically, they've kind of been oil and water. And I would argue that you, know, you both have different training. You're not trying to be the same. You're different on purpose, but it's you know two plus two equals five because I, I've learned amazing things that I just wouldn't have had access had I stayed in my little silo of orthopedics. And I think they would say the same thing. So the future of OFA is to grow, to share our diverse uh, model, and to show how with that kind of a diverse model, we can scale care. You don't throw an orthopedic surgeon at every foot and ankle problem. You, you just don't have to. And likewise, you don't have to throw, you know, you don't have to throw a surgeon at all at a lot of foot and ankle problems. There's, there's plenty of caregivers uh, in the office who are experts in their own right doing their own thing that just don't wield a knife as part of their care plan. And, and that's good. So when you walk in our office, you're not signing up for surgery. You're signing up to, hey, my foot hurts. Can you help me figure it out? What about your consulting work with Blue Jackets? 
Yeah. So jackets is God's gift to me. Uh, I'll just, <laughs> let me just be super clear. And what I mean by that is, is uh, we moved to Columbus uh, in uh, 99 and we we're coming into a city we didn't really know. Uh, we really didn't know anybody here. I had a couple people uh, in town that were very uh, uh, kind and, and welcoming uh, to us. But I was here maybe four months, and the Jackets had already bought the franchise. McConnell had bought the franchise, uh, but they hadn't built out their team. And uh, Ohio Health had taken on the role as lead healthcare uh, organization, and, and uh, I've always been closely affiliated with Ohio Health. And, and so Jackets came, and they said, hey, will you, will you be our foot and ankle consultant? And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> so had I, had I gone back to Toronto, you know, that'd been something that I would have gunned for in my 50s. That, that would have been the legacy project. And right. here I was just starting and I had the opportunity to engage with the team. Uh, and it's been, it's been fun. Uh, it, you know, you, you get to know the guys, you get to know the, know the organization. The reality is you don't have a lot of foot and ankle injuries in hockey. You take, they get the big boot on. Yeah. And, yeah. They, they take a, they, you know, they take a, a puck once in a while. There's a few ankle fractures, that kind of thing. The major injuries in hockey are face, teeth, yep. noses, eyes. That's what really gets shoulders, tend to get hurt, not a ton of foot and ankle. So it's kind of the perfect consultant role, right? You, you get the title, you get to hang out, uh, but you don't actually have to do a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. Although yeah. when it happens, it happens usually in a fairly dramatic fashion. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza I don't or anything. think so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hypeck. I mean, I go there all the yeah. time. They're hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's Man, what I was going to say. Is, as soon oh. as we had them on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but Hypeck's a lot more than just a restaurant. They just stole whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, the story behind the organization is great too. So yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. Mm -hmm. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events right now. They're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far. That's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant, somewhere to watch the game. If you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I All promise right. you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. So Greg, let's talk a little bit about Columbus community. I mean, you mentioned, you know, six months in when you first got here, you knew, hey, we're buying a house. Let's, this is where we want to be. What about the Columbus community stood out to you? Yeah. So Columbus has just been really amazing for us. So uh, we raised uh, our family up in Westerville and it's safe. It's nice. It's uh, very welcoming to us. And so that was easy as a plant because when we moved here, uh, our girls were very young. So, so you had to make sure everybody was comfortable and, and that really ended up not being an issue at all for us. Uh, so that was great. So I could focus on the work and not kind of have this background worry about what's going on uh, at home. As Columbus uh, has grown, uh, is a lot of great things have happened. We moved here and the city was a little less than a million people. Uh, and as you know, the metro area is over two now. So, so as, it, as it grew uh, and we engaged in it, we started meeting really interesting people. Uh, one of the early guys 
uh, was uh, the executive director over at uh, Warm, who's a super intuitive guy. You've met Scott. Scott is uh, smart. He's got a laser focus on his uh, faith mission and, and what his role in that is. And so the first time I met Scott, uh, to his credit, is he had me sized up in seconds. I, 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 I hate to be so transparent, but, but we were sitting in my office, and, I, and I'd been introduced to them a bit. And, and Scott came over. He said, hey, let me talk to you about warm. And, um, and I thought he would talk about the mission and all that. Uh, and he said, so I, I we'll get to the mission, but I want to talk to you about how 90-something percent of every dollar donated drops to the service we're doing. And, and I like, I like who's been talking to you? Cause that's my, my magic question. If somebody calls me up for money is I said, all right, how much drops to the mission? You know, and it's going to have to be higher or else you're not seeing burlet money. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not. So people who have professional fundraisers will never see my money because typically at least 40 or 50% of every dollar goes off right. to that service, not even to the charity. So, right. so for some reason, Scott read through that and, and, he said, I said, all right, you got my attention. Let's talk about mission and, and stuff. So we, so Scott uh, and I have gone, and, and we, the family, have gone through uh, this, and, and we've been very happy uh, to support them. I like their trademark name is, uh, is a hand up, not a handout. Uh, and so what they do is uh, people that are temporary in terms of their need, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's they don't have a job, whether they don't have the clothes to wear to go get the interview to have the job, is they're very good at identifying what those, those touch points are to then get them uh, back uh, into the game of life. Uh, because when, when you're down, it can be uh, take every bit of energy you've got just to get up and then to, to figure out a way to get food on the table. And, and so we feel very comfortable with Warm. We feel very comfortable sharing our resources with Warm. And I've never had that economic conversation with him again. Mm-hmm. Somehow Scott just knew, get it off the table and, and this is going to go well. Uh, so I, I use them as the prototype. Uh, and when I look at uh, other groups, uh, we'll look at. So it's Diane and I and the two girls. Uh, and we like them to have their own passion projects. So uh, our daughter, Jenna, if, if she's got a passion project, then we encourage her, hey, come to us and, and talk us through uh, what it is, why you're passionate, and how much money do you think we should support them? And the answer is almost always going to be yes. Mm-hmm. And so it allows us to do something. What Diane and I are doing is uh, we think we are teaching the kids to uh, kids, these they're in their twenties. We're teaching our daughters uh, to be generous by giving away what's currently our money and will eventually be their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels good. It feels good to share. It feels good to lift up your community. And it's an awesome place we live in Columbus. Uh, but there are there's a lot of hurt on the there's a lot of hurt, and it's not necessarily on the periphery. It's you just don't see it unless you look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Scott and others have opened my eyes that it's there. Uh, and so uh, if somebody has, has their own mission that, that, uh, that needs some of that help and they've got a good strategic plan about how some seed capital will help it go, that's the stuff that Burlett Family Foundation loves getting involved with. Yeah. And if you guys are listening out there and you're wondering how to support Warm, actually, by the time this episode airs, there should be a social post up talking about Warm and what they do. You guys can check out our social pages and there should be a link there that you can click on to go help support them. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, I believe it's warmwesterville.org. Yeah. Westerville Area Resource Ministry. Yep. Well, Greg, I think this is a good time to kind of pivot towards uh, some of our last questions of the show. And, and the main one is, you know, actually the last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. And that is live uncomfortably. 
And without telling you too much about why we chose that for a podcast about entrepreneurs, business owners, and uh, leaders across the city, what do you think of when you hear the phrase and how does it apply to your life and career? Uh, so um, I have a few things that I do is just a game with myself. So I like learning a word of the day. So as I'm going through my office, I'll interact with 50, 60 people in the course of a day. Some of those are staff, some of those are patients. And if I hear that word, I kind of pick up on it and I say, all right, I'm just always trying to build this uh, vocabulary because it, it keeps it interesting. And that has evolved now to kind of more of those motivational statements. So I keep a whiteboard in my office. Uh, and honestly, I stole your logo for a while. It was up there. I don't, I don't know if Josh saw it, but it was up there for probably six months uh, living uncomfortably. Uh, because I think if, if you become satisfied, I think you become complacent. Uh, and if you come become complacent, then you're just not delivering uh, the best that you've got to offer. So in, in my surgical world, uh, if you're still doing the same surgery now as you were five years ago, you know what, dude, you're behind. It, it thing evolves. Uh, in our implants, uh, I do a lot of implant design, is uh, the implant has to evolve. Uh, the average lifespan uh, of an implant in our marketplace is about seven years. And that's good because materials change and technology change. And the idea is let's get that patient through that episode of care safely and as fast as you can. But if you're living comfortably and you're sitting back, then somebody else is making those decisions for you and, and you're unlikely to do it. So uh, although it's uh, uncomfortable to live uncomfortably, and I know that's not a really very good statement, I think that it is where you need to live uh, because otherwise I, I think life is boring and you're not evolving. Greg, that's a great answer and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show to tell your story and talk about OFAC and uh, everything else you have going on. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview and you want to hear more of them, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on and you will get interviews like this every week right in your ears. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that one. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>